Good morning again. Turn your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 20. We'll be uh, looking at a passage which is found in the Synoptic Gospels, all three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. I want to read Matthew chapter 20, verses 29 through 34 first, then we'll flip over to Luke 18 and then to Mark 10. References should be behind me. They are. Matthew chapter 20. Verses 29 through 34. As they were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed him. And two blind men sitting by the road, hearing that Jesus was passing by, cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd sternly told them to be quiet, but they cried out all the more. Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. And Jesus stopped and called them and said, what do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, we want our eyes to be opened. Moved with compassion, Jesus touched their eyes and immediately they regained their sight and followed him. Turn to Luke chapter 18, verses 35 through 43. As Jesus was approaching Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the road begging. Now hearing a crowd going by, he began to inquire what this was. They told him that Jesus of Nazareth was passing by. And he called out saying, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Those who led the way were sternly telling him to be quiet. But he kept crying out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded that he be brought to him and when he came near, he questioned him, what do you want me to do for you? And he said, Lord, I want to regain my sight. Jesus said to him, receive your sight. Your faith has made you well. Immediately, he regained his sight and began following him, glorifying God. And when all the people saw it, they gave praise to God. Mark chapter 10. Verses 46 through 52. Then they came to Jericho. And as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a large crowd, a blind beggar named Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the road. When he heard that it was Jesus, the Nazarene, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many were sternly telling him to be quiet. But he kept crying out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and said, Call him here. So they called the blind man, saying to him, Take courage, stand up. He's calling for you. Throwing aside his cloak, he jumped up and came to Jesus. And answered, answering him, Jesus said, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabboni, I want to regain my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go, your faith has made you well. Immediately he regained his sight and began following him on the road. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for your mighty word which is continually training and instructing and exhorting and rebuking and encouraging us but a glorious picture of the Gospels presented us here in this text. 
I pray, Lord, that You would work in hearts and minds as we work through this text together. Holy Spirit, please come and teach us all. Transform us by Your Holy Word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we get started, I want to do something a little bit different. I want to ask all of you to close your eyes. And I'm going to reread this account, harmonizing all three of those texts. And I want you to listen to this with your eyes closed, if you wouldn't mind. And they were coming into Jericho. And as he and his disciples and a considerable crowd were going out from Jericho, while still near, they came upon two blind men sitting by the road, one of whom was a beggar named Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus. Now, having heard a large crowd passing through, Bartimaeus inquired what all the commotion was about. It was announced that Jesus the Nazarene was passing by. Upon hearing this, the men cried out, Jesus, Son of David, mercy us! The ones leading the way sharply rebuked these men, telling them to be silent. But they just cried out all the more, Son of David, Lord, mercy us! Jesus comes to a standstill and He calls to them, requesting the blind men be brought before Him. The crowd calls the blind, saying, Be courageous, He is calling you. Cloak is thrown aside. And standing men are brought before Jesus. Jesus asks, What do you wish I might do for you? Lord, that our eyes might be opened. Rabbi, that I might recover sight. The reply. Deeply moved within, Jesus said, Go, see, your faith has saved you. And He touched their eyes. Immediately they could see and followed Jesus on the road and glorified God. And all the people having seen this, Gave praise to God. Okay, you can open your eyes. Why would have you do that? What is it like to be blind? What are those events? What would those events have appeared to be for you? This morning we come to one of the last recorded miracles of Jesus during his earthly ministry. It's recorded by Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and the main situation is almost identical. However, Between the accounts, as we read them one by one, a couple of different details become apparent. First of all, Matthew speaks of two blind men, Luke speaks of only one, and Mark names that one Bartimaeus, and then defines that for us, Bar meaning son, son of Timaeus. Why might focus be given to one man in particular if two were present? Both cried out, both came forward, both requested eyes be opened, both were touched, both were healed and followed Jesus. Why do a couple of accounts only mention one man? That's an interesting question for harmonization. A second question is this. We're provided with different geographical markers. Were they coming into Jericho or were they leaving Jericho when this happened? This has fostered all sorts of questions and discussions as to how these things might be understood together. Obviously, there are critics of the Bible that would say that details like these stand against the inerrancy of Scripture. Remember, the, whenever we come to places like this, 
It's not incumbent upon us to be able to harmonize all details, but just to be able to provide that there are ways in which it can be. God is not under obligation to give us every detail. Neither is any writer required to give us all details that occur in any of the events in Jesus' life. Some have tried to say that there's two separate events going on here, maybe two different healings, maybe one as Jesus comes in and one as he goes out. However, the similarity of the accounts argues against that. Others argue that there were two Jerichos at this time, that there was the Old Testament one that was kind of in ruins, and then there was the new Jericho that Herod had built, and perhaps Jesus is in between the old and new Jericho when this event transpires, thereby rectifying both accounts, that he was both leaving Jericho and he was coming into Jericho, kind of like they're going out of the old city and into the new city. Still others have explained that perhaps after traveling through Jericho and exiting the city, Jesus then healed these men. However, then shortly thereafter, as we'll see next week in Luke 19, Jesus comes across Zacchaeus and then says, I'm going to go to your house today. Is it possible that after that event, that that meant that Jesus went back into Jericho after having exited it? So, in other words, from one perspective, from one gospel writer, Jesus has left Jericho and he's moving on. And meanwhile, in Luke's perspective, in Luke 19, he's about to talk about Zacchaeus and Jesus going to his house. So, in that sense, Jesus is about to re-enter into Jericho. That's another way of understanding this. Calvin conjectures that these men were present when Jesus entered and exited the city. In other words, that Jesus probably came across them as he entered and then he came across them again as he exited. His idea being that all that time left time for these men to persist in calling out Jesus, son of David, mercy me or mercy us. Why is Matthew the only one of the two that speak or of the three that speaks of two blind men being healed? Well, it may be that Bartimaeus was more well known to the church later. So accounts of Luke and Mark just follow one of the two men that had been healed. Neither of those exclude the possibility that another man was present. Neither of them say there were not two men. They just speak of one. The point here is this. Whenever we come to details like this, we have to make plain that these descriptors are not contradictory. We're just not afforded the exact harmonization nor is it required. Any one of those options I just provided could be the way in which it happened. But we don't have to settle that out this morning. There are some things that haven't been told us, and we can be content with that. But did you see the amazing details that are provided? The description is dripping with eyewitness evidences. It points to the commonly held belief that Mark was recording Peter's testimony He names this man Bartimaeus. Mark explains that means son of Timaeus. He's a blind beggar. We're told, we know from Mark, that this man was wearing a cloak because he throws it aside when he rises up and jumps up and runs to Jesus. We're told that a large crowd is present. This makes sense. We're coming up to what great Jewish festival? Passover, very good, yes. Jesus is on final approach into Jerusalem. And uh, we're very, very quickly approaching Jesus' crucifixion. There would have been a good number of pilgrims traveling to Jerusalem for Passover. And if you were traveling to Jerusalem from the east, you'd come over the Jordan and then through Jericho on your approach up to Jerusalem. So this is a place where many people would be coming through. Crowds have gathered a good number, we're told, have joined with Jesus and his disciples. And they're kind of like an entourage following Jesus towards Jerusalem. 
expectation, I believe, is building here around Jesus' approach. However, the crowd's fickleness is demonstrated when it acts as an encourager to this blind man only after they've discouraged him. This is what's so interesting is that this whole crowd happens upon a blind man who's sitting there blindly on the sidelines. And what we find throughout this account is a blind beggar sitting on the sidelines is transformed into one who sees and follows Jesus. And isn't that wonderful news to us? Isn't it wonderful news to know that Jesus can take a blind beggar sitting as a spectator on the sidelines and give him sight and have him follow him? Because when it gets right down to it, we're all a bunch of blind beggars. This miracle is a glimpse of the gospel. We're all spiritually blind and in need of Jesus to give us sight. We all need to be given vision. Because as we read this morning in 2 Corinthians 4, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. We can rejoice this morning by the grace and mercy of Jesus that we can be transported from blindly sitting by the way to now seeing the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ and following Him. Psalm 50, verse 15, the Lord exhorts, Call upon me in the day of trouble, and I shall rescue you, and you will honor me. Call upon me, I will rescue you, and you will honor me. That definitely is followed through in this account. And we have so much to learn from this miracle. But I want to boil it down to three lessons. Three lessons from a blind beggar to blind beggars. Three lessons from a blind beggar to blind beggars. We'll look at these in turn. First of all, blind beggars are dependent. Second of all, blind beggars are desperate. Third of all, blind beggars are positioned perfectly to receive grace. Blind beggars are dependent. Blind beggars are desperate. And blind beggars are positioned perfectly to receive grace. Let's first of all look at the fact that blind beggars are dependent. Now, I'm going to appear to be Captain Obvious here. What do we know about blind beggars? Two things to say about them. They're blind and they're poor. They're blind and they're impoverished. They're destitute. They cannot see and they're quite helpless. Let's first consider their blindness. The blind, especially in those days, were often reduced to begging. They depended upon others for their provision. Unless they had wealthy family members or someone who was taking care of them, a relative, this is, would be their lot in life. And being the time of pilgrimage to Jerusalem for Passover, this would be a particularly good time to set up shop for begging. You've got a lot of pilgrims traveling through, and they're traveling through with a holy festival in mind. If there's ever going to be people who have some amount of generosity, that might be the moment. And here they are setting up outside of Jericho where a lot of people would be going by, hoping that they can scratch out enough to make it through another day. There's hardly any more pitiful state than a blind man who is alone without the support of others. Here we 
have pictured two blind men together, which seems to make a lot of sense. At least they would be there to, I say, look out for one another, but without the ability to see, to care for one another. Just pleading for some coins in order to live another day. We don't really know anything about these men. We don't know how they became blind. We don't know why there's no family looking after them. And we don't know how they came to know about Jesus. It's obvious they know something about Him. But we're not told the backstory. But when they hear a great crowd coming their way, and that's what I want you to think about. So you're sitting outside and all of a sudden you hear a crowd coming. And so the question is asked, what's going on? And when they're told that Jesus of Nazareth is passing by, they jump into action. They erupt into cries for help. The Greek word krazo. They cry out. Now, how could they do this unless they knew something about Jesus? How could they persist in these calls if they didn't believe in Him? And how did they come to faith in Him? One of the things I was reading, I read Spurgeon, a sermon by Spurgeon. There we go. And I laughed when he said that he might risk a conjecture as to how these men came to believe Jesus to be the Messiah. And then his next statement is, it is quite certain it was not from what they saw. I sat there and laughed myself. It's a big risk, Spurgeon. You really went out there on a limb on that one. I wondered for a while if he meant it as a joke. But then as he continued reading, I saw that he actually was going to go further. You see, we must surmise that these men, what they knew of Jesus, had only been by hearsay. Yet they exercised greater faith than those who had seen Jesus' miracles. Spurgeon imagines a moment in which these blind men got wind of a story. And perhaps they got wind of many stories while they sat outside of the city of Jericho. But perhaps there is one story, this is some conjecture from Spurgeon, so one story that lighted on their ears with a little bit more hope. Perhaps it was the story of hearing that Jesus healed a man born blind. For no one had ever experienced that before. Maybe upon hearing that story, if they had, can you imagine what that news would have been and done for these men? And then had they been involved in the synagogue at all and in listening to the Scriptures, perhaps they heard that the Messiah was Him who would open the the eyes of the blind. Could they, from that moment, have become secret disciples of Jesus from that point forward? All we do know is that when they hear that Jesus the Nazarene is coming, how do they address Jesus? Not as Jesus from Nazareth, but Jesus, Son of David. A messianic, kingly title. They call upon the descendant of David, promised by God, whose throne would be established forever, and who would be God's son. 2 Samuel 7. Isaiah 35.5, we had this read this morning as well, indicated that blind men would regain their sight. And the immediacy and passion with which these men call out for mercy when they hear that Jesus is passing by lends credence to Spurgeon's imaginative reconstruction. Whatever it is that they heard, there was belief that Jesus could do something for them. 
They were convinced of that. But nevertheless, the blindness of these men means that they were dependent on someone outside of themselves. They were dependent on someone coming and telling them the story. In reality, this is a great picture of all of us because we're all dependent. Oftentimes we think ourselves self-sufficient, but we're really not. And the worst blindness you can ever experience is when you're blind to your own blindness. When you don't recognize your own condition. A blind man who's aware of his limitations is in one spot, but a blind man who thinks he sees and goes about as such is in for a very rough road. They're dependent because they're blind. They're also dependent because they're poor. They're poverty. They're impoverished. I mean, being blind is bad enough. Being blind and maybe having a lot of resources, at least you can kind of try to, okay, I can... I can make this thing work. It's going to be tough. It's going to be hard to not be able to see. But they have no support and no money and no eyesight. What a tough situation. You see, these blind men were well acquainted with both their blindness and their poverty. They saw the wretched condition. They weren't trying to cover it over. They weren't trying to act like seeing men. They weren't trying to pretend that they had lots of wealth. What a contrast to the rich young ruler, huh? The rich young ruler comes to Jesus, and when Jesus tells him to give up all that he has and sell it and give it to the poor, he goes away sad. Why? Because his heart was so wrapped around his stuff. He was blinded by his own possessions. Meanwhile, these men are not fooled about their situation in life. These beggars don't recite any personal accomplishments as Jesus goes by, nor do they feel that they deserve anything from Jesus. Their cry is, mercy, mercy us, be merciful to us. They look for pity. They hope for compassion. They pray that Jesus will notice their wretched state and extend them aid. They hope that there's something in Jesus that will cause Him to extend love and care and Compassion towards them, not because they deserve it, but because of how wretched their state is. As Daniel Doriani explains, rather than pass by, they wish that Jesus would stop by. And they call out to him, hoping that he will give them aid. There are no elaborate arguments given, just the simplest of heartfelt expressions. Jesus, Lord, Son of David, Mercy, yes. There's so much to learn in those words. May we always remember at the end of the day that we are all unprofitable servants. We are all sinners saved by grace. We deserve judgment and wrath. We're the chief of sinners. We're poor. We're blind. We're naked. We're dead. We're dependent. We're impoverished. As a matter of fact, the only thing we are great in is need. That's what we have. We all have great need. Blind beggars are not only dependent, they're desperate. Point two, blind beggars are desperate. This desperation shows itself in a couple of ways. First of all, desperation shows itself in persistence. Desperation shows itself in persistence. As these beggars cry out for mercy, the crowd charges them to be quiet. Hush! 
be silent. Not sure why they say this. It's possible, depending on who it is that's really asking these guys to be quiet, it's possible that they knew that there had already been plots on Jesus' own life, already been attempts at arresting Jesus, and maybe the disciples and some that are around him are concerned that this might endanger the welfare of Jesus as they're traveling towards Jerusalem. Remember, Jesus had already told the disciples to be quiet on this matter when Peter says, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. Remember, Jesus kind of says, for most of his ministry, he's saying, be quiet about that. And now here we have a couple of guys who are blind on the side of the road as this big crowd goes through, and they keep shouting over and over again, Jesus, Son of David! Jesus, Son of David! It's possible that some that were there were concerned about their welfare and their safety should that become voiced quite loudly. It's interesting here, Jesus doesn't stop them from that, does He? He doesn't tell them to hush and be quiet on this occasion. It's time for His position as Messiah to become more and more well known. And even though the nature of His Messiahship is still going to be misunderstood, the fact that He is the Messiah is going to become more and more plain and clear. We're all moments away from the triumphal entry. (laughs) And there will be Palm branches. Hosanna, son of David. These things will be announced. It's going to become quite public. As a matter of fact, the chief priests and scribes in coming events are going to get upset when they hear children referring to Jesus as the son of David. You see this in Matthew 21, verses 15 and 16. And Jesus responds by saying, this is just fulfillment of prophecy. Out of the mouth of, mouth of infants and nursing babies, you prepared praise for yourself. Might have been for that reason. It's also possible that the crowd that's there is just annoyed by them. <laughs> and somebody keeps saying, Jesus, Son of David, mercy us! 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 After a while, it's like, be quiet. We've got more pressing matters to attend to than a couple of beggars sitting on the side of the road. But the crowd's efforts, be quiet, hush up, be silent, what does it do to the beggars? They not only say, keep saying it, but what does it do? All the more, Jesus, Son of David, mercy us. Can you imagine being in the shoes of these blind men? You hear that this miracle worker, this man of compassion and power, is passing by in a big crowd. You're there on the side of the road. This might be your only opportunity. You'd be shouting. If you knew who he was, you'd be shouting. I'm sure that They had to shout over the din of the large crowd. I always remember being at Texas A&M. Oddly enough, this passage was preached at a breakaway service, a big college Bible study meeting, big auditoriums. Eventually, went to some of the baseball fields and basketball arena. The Bible study got that big. I always remember one particular evening, the speaker was talking about this miracle. And there was someone out 
in the crowd that kept saying, Amen! 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 Now, this preacher was as white as they get. And I say that for this reason. He was not used to any congregational feedback. I still remember that moment and I go, man, that stuff's great. I mean, it just kind of pushes on the sermon, you know. He stops his message and he says, would you please stop saying that? You're throwing off my concentration and what I'm trying to do. I remember everybody kind of looking around and like, okay, what's going to happen now? And then from the crowd, the guy replies, this is one of my favorite texts. (laughs) To which the speaker said, I appreciate that and the Lord bless you, but you're really causing me some trouble. To which then the man replies again, I'm blind! I remember chuckling up in this... I was up in the, like, the upper deck of this thing and just laughing to myself. I'm like, what a perfect example! This guy is following through. He won't be silenced. He'll shout all the more. You see, we have to come to the same conclusion that we're blind! And then when people try to keep us quiet and hush us up, there will be no stopping us. Be warned. Don't allow the actions or inactions of others to keep you from calling out to Jesus and coming to Him. Pay no attention to those who try to dissuade you from running to Jesus because there are plenty of people who chide you if you show any interest in Jesus Christ. G.C. Ryle said, There never will be wanting people who will tell us that it's too soon or too late, that we're going too fast or too far, that we need not pray so much or read our Bibles so much or be anxious about salvation. Don't let those people stop you from crying out to Jesus. Don't allow the discouragement of family members or friends or the teasing of them to keep you from Him. makes me think of John Bunyan's famous allegory, Pilgrim's Progress, and Right there at the very beginning of the story, Evangelist tells Christian to flee the wrath to come and to run to the wicked gate. And as Christian has not run very far from his own door, his wife and children perceive it and they begin to cry out to him to return. But what does Christian do? He puts his fingers in his ears. And he continues running, crying out, Life! Life! Eternal life! Let me ask you this. If you were in a burning building and there were others there who encouraged you, just stay put. Who cares about the flames? Or you looked out a window and you saw people who were safe from the flames, but they didn't seem to care anything about you inside the building. They seemed unconcerned about your state. Would either situation cause you to grow slack and crying out to help to a firefighter who's approaching the building? Would you resist his efforts to save you because others were hindrances to that? Some may say, you don't want to be one of those people, do you? 
You're not going to be one of those Jesus freaks, are you? Don't get too carried away with that religion stuff. But at the end of the day, isn't that exactly what we're hoping for? I mean, we're hoping to be mercied by Jesus. We're hoping to be granted a place by His side. We're hoping to be carried away by Him to an e- a happily ever ending. To know a love without conditions. To know a forgiveness without limit. We need to be rescued and to be carried away to our real home in that great land where we will never grow old. There's something wrong with the here and now. Sin has wrecked havoc on the world. And we need deliverance. We need rescue. We need salvation. And only one can provide it. You see, a person who is so easily deterred from calling out to Jesus when naysayers attempt to silence him or her are not convinced of their desperate condition, of their desperate, sinful, dead condition, that they're poor, blind beggars. Or, they're not convinced of Jesus' ability to save and restore and make brand new poor, blind beggars. Once you see just how gracious and merciful a Savior Jesus is, nothing will stop you from running to Him. Now, regardless of what others said or thought, Bartimaeus knew his own desperate condition and he knew Jesus' ability to help him. It mattered little what lack of encouragement he received. It mattered little what others might do to stand in his way. He must cry out to Jesus. Only Jesus could help him. This man knew it was worth whatever screaming he could muster, whatever hoarseness that might develop in his throat, if just perhaps Jesus might hear him. If only Jesus would stop and help him. Whatever ridicule mattered little, he cried all the more. Makes me think of the words of, I must tell Jesus. I must tell Jesus. I must tell Jesus. I cannot bear my burdens alone. I must tell Jesus. I must tell Jesus. Jesus can help me. Jesus alone. Listen to some of the verses in that. I must tell Jesus all of my trials. I cannot bear these burdens alone. In my distress, He kindly will help me. He ever loves and cares for His own. I must tell Jesus all of my troubles. He is a kind, compassionate friend. If I but ask Him, He will deliver. And in my griefs with me, He will blend. Tempted and tried, I need a great Savior. One who can help my burdens to bear. I must tell Jesus. I must tell Jesus. He all my cares and sorrows will share. Oh, how this world of evil allures me. Oh, how my heart is tempted to sin. I must tell Jesus He will enable over the world the victory to win. But their desperation is also seen in their enthusiasm. Not just their persistence, but their enthusiasm. The crowd, as soon as Jesus stops and summons that the blind be brought to Him, Everything hushes, and the crowd tries, the crowd that was trying to silence the man, all of a sudden is silenced by Jesus. And a command is given from Jesus that the blind men be brought to him. It's interesting that the crowd changes its tune. We hear them coming to these blind men saying, Be courageous! He is calling you! 
sure by this time the blind men are like, yeah, thanks a lot. You've helped me a whole lot. And you're telling me now to be courageous? I've been standing against a lot of you this whole time. You think now I need you to encourage me to go to him? And it's almost like as if they're going to grab him, you know, to pick him up and pick him there. And then we have this really great descriptor. He takes off his cloak, throws it, jumps up, and comes. What a moment. There's some amount of discussion regarding the throwing of his cloak, if that has any further significance. N.T. Wright argues that that moment when Bartimaeus left his cloak, that it was already a silent declaration that he had given up a life of beggary. He bases that claim on the idea that oftentimes beggars would spread out their cloak in front of them on the ground to receive money because Jericho was seldom cold enough for anyone to ever have to wear a cloak anyway. So why does he have it? Interesting potential. Perhaps it's a sign of this man's faith in another way, though. For if he wanted to regain his cloak, he now could use the eyes that Jesus is about to give him to go back and find it. Jesus asked these men, what do you want done for you? Fascinating. This question had just been asked by Jesus. Same question. Different audience. Do you remember it? Just before this. James and John. Jesus says, what do you want done for you? Remember they say, Jesus, give us whatever we wish. Jesus says, what do you want done for you? Same question. Question. Same question. James and John ask for prominence. They ask for accolade. They want to sit at Jesus' right and left. They're told by Jesus, glory is only going to follow suffering. And the seats on Jesus' right and left are for his father to give. That's the response that the disciples get. Here Bartimaeus pleads for mercy from Jesus. Jesus grants him sight and immediately he uses those eyes to follow Jesus on the road. James and John asked to be given a position of power. Bartimaeus asks for Jesus to exercise his power. We as readers at this point in our Gospel Harmony almost already know what's coming, right? I mean, as we started to read this text and you heard that there was blind beggars on the road, what do you instantly think in your mind? Be honest, what do you think in your mind? Jesus is going to heal them, right? He's going to give them sight. And we're, we're jumping to those conclusions immediately because we've seen Jesus do things like that, exercise compassion towards people. We as readers can guess what's going to happen. But were the onlookers aware of what was about to take place? The title Son of David is a title of royalty. Could it be that these blind beggars assumed that they could get rich off of Jesus? Perhaps the crowd was attempting to silence these men because it's like, you can't see him, but he doesn't have deep pockets. You know, maybe the common thing for beggars to say, mercy me. In other words, give me money. Mercy me. Help me. Maybe they're saying, eh, you don't understand beggars. But Jesus knows what's in the heart of these men. When given an opportunity in the midst of the crowd to ask for whatever they want, they don't waste the moment on money. They don't waste the moment on money. They have a much bigger request in mind. And I want you to catch this. The nature of the request tells us something about the nature of their faith. 
You don't go into McDonald's asking for a juicy T-bone steak. You don't. They don't have it to give. They'll say, you're at the wrong place. We can't provide that to you here. We've got some mystery meat for you, but we don't, we don't, we don't have a T-bone steak to provide. How many children will ask their daddy or mommy for a pony? Or ask their daddy or mommy for the moon? In that little child's mind, mommy or daddy can get it for them. Well, in either case, the, re- the request would have to be refused, at least the moon part, either from lack of belief that such a request could ever be granted or lack of genuine ability to fulfill it. And I can almost imagine the hushed silence as these blind men ask Jesus, not for money, but for eyes. We want opened eyes. That's what we want. I think they honor Jesus by the bigness of the request. We're not here for some change from your pocket, Jesus. We're here for some change for our eyes. They weren't talking to a man with some loose change. They were talking to the Lord of the universe who could make the blind see. If their request was met with laughter, they would lose out on the money as well, most likely. But they believed Jesus could perform this miracle for them. And while these men were blind, they saw Jesus with the eyes of their heart. They saw Jesus more clearly on this occasion than most of the people around him, if not all of them. And Jesus provides what they ask for. Jesus helped those who recognized their need and cried out for help, and he still does so to this very day. Jesus said in John 20, verse 29, Blessed are those who do not see yet believe. Blessed are those who do not see, yet believe. You see, we're in a similar situation. We don't live while Jesus conducted His physical earthly ministry. What we know of Him, we know by the report of others. However, we have more than those blind beggars did. We know the fuller story of God's revelation given to us in the New Testament. We know the salvation that is provided to us in much fuller picture. So we must not waste our even greater privilege. We must trust God's promises and commit ourselves to Christ with immediacy, calling upon the Lord while it's still called today. Because, quite honestly, none of us are guaranteed even another moment. You see, the Christian life boils down to this very simple request. Jesus, Son of David, mercy me. It's the cry for mercy and grace that sums up our past, present, and future experience as Christians. We're all a bunch of desperate sinners coming to Jesus as our great physician who provides healing for our souls. Well, point number three. Blind beggars are positioned perfectly to receive grace. Blind beggars are positioned perfectly to receive grace. First note with me the Savior's work. And... We can maybe describe it this way. First of all, let's consider his calling here. You see, it's one thing to call on Jesus. is quite another when Jesus calls you. Jesus is never annoyed by the cries of people. We don't see a text where there's someone in 
brokenness, crying out to Jesus, and Jesus goes, I don't have time for you. Jesus is attentive to the cries of people calling out to him for mercy. While meanwhile, people around there are saying, be quiet, you criers, you crybabies. Even here, as Jesus is making his final journey towards Jerusalem, Jericho is about 15 miles away from Jerusalem. And that 15 miles is a pretty arduous journey uphill from Jericho to Jerusalem. Over 3,000 foot elevation change from Jericho to Jerusalem. That's why Jesus can tell his parable of the Good Samaritan and talk about how the person was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, even though Jericho is, if you look at a map, north east of Jerusalem. But he's going down because the elevation is such. Here's Jesus making the upward climb towards Jerusalem. Towards what? Towards what he's just told his disciples about. I'm about to go meet death. He's going to defeat it. He's going to meet with death. Yet, he never grows tired of the calls of those who are suffering and calling out to him. Jesus sees every tear and he stops and he summons that they come unto him. Think about this. Jesus is contemplating the heaviest burden ever imaginable and he stops and is moved with compassion, we're told, within for the plight of blind beggars on the side of the road. So I think about that. It is deeply humbling to consider how often have I been too busy Have I been too busy with my own life to help someone in need? One such example. Friday night, I was eating dinner with the Serenes. I was reminded as we got to the car that I had forgotten to get my son's blanket, which had been left in the Mother's Day out room up here at the school church. My wife gently encouraged me to go and get it. But it would involve a trip coming this way rather than going straight home. So I stubbornly refused to go back to the church for a minute or so. While my wife was gently encouraging me to reconsider that. And the sound of my son's soft sobbing in the back seat for his TT, his blanket, was entering my ears How could I discount his cry for help? Especially when I had forgotten his blanket in the first place. And after getting the blanket for Joel in the car, his face lit up and he exclaimed, Thank you, Dada. Now, here's the good news. Our Heavenly Father is so unlike me. He's not a forgetful, begrudging dad who finally relents and sees to to their heart cries. He's a wonderful, merciful, loving, concerned Father who comes to help us even before we ask Him. And He stops everything to listen and attend to the needs of His children when they cry out to Him. And think about it. God has every reason in the world, or maybe we say every reason in the universe, to comparatively say that our problems are not worthy of His attention. I mean, my Father could say to me, Yes, the issue you're going through right now may seem big, But I'm concerned for some starving people in a refugee camp halfway across the world. Or, there's a political summit where the fate of millions of lives are at stake. I'm attending to that. Or, I'm directing the paths of planets and stars and 
galaxies right now, Jess. I'll get back to you in a little while. Or, how about this? I'm sustaining the very fabric of the universe right now. I mean, comparatively speaking, when you think about it that way, I'm sure almost every single one of my calls to to God is like my son asking for his blanket. Comparatively speaking, on the grand scheme of things, how is it that God cares? How do we know God cares? How do we know that's not how God is? He just set everything in motion and just sits back and let it roll. How do we know God cares? We know God cares because He sent His Son. And His Son was the fullest manifestation of what God is because He is God. And then He demonstrated in ways like this. I'm sure the disciples at that moment were like, wow, this is a pretty crazy, amazing miracle. They didn't know the full understand what was about to happen. I'm sure they look back on this story, and as three Gospels record it for us, I'm sure they look back on it with great joy. Jesus was still compassionately thinking about others as He's about to go meet the greatest difficulty ever imagined. To lay down His life as a substitute for sinners to endure the wrath of God on our behalf. What an act of compassion. What a loving Savior. What a magnanimous God. Jesus is calling beggars. The crowd relays the news. He's calling you. Not long earlier, this same statement had been made from Mary, from, from Martha to Mary. He's calling you. And similarly, as the one called comes unto Jesus, Jesus provides comfort and healing and restoration. In the case of Lazarus, resurrection. In the case of dead sinners, resurrection. Jesus is calling. His compassion is present here. He performed the healing out of a heart that was deeply moved. That Greek word, splachnizomai. Felt it down deep. His stomach was upset. His heart was burning within. He hurt for man's pitiful state. And he entered into our sorrows and he carried our griefs. And in fulfillment of his father's plan, he would ultimately and finally deal with sin and all of its effects in his own meeting with sin and death. But on his journey there, there is no way of stopping an expression of that love, mercy, and grace being extended to those who are crying out to Him on the side of the road. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O oh God, You will not despise. Psalm 51, 1 Peter 5, God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. Jesus' compassion. His calling, His compassion. Lastly, His healing. Great details in this account considering that these men are blind. When someone is blind, if you've lost one of your senses, usually your other senses are more heightened, right? Your, your hearing becomes a little bit more adapt. Your touch becomes a little bit more sensitive. You depend upon these senses to know the world around you. And for that reason, I find real interesting that Jesus' activity again as He heals these men takes into account that reality. We're told He says, go or See, regain your sight. Your faith has healed you. We're told that He touches their eyes. Such compassion. Even His manner shows compassion and love and care. 
We're told that these men not only received physical sight, but Jesus indicates that Bartimaeus' faith has saved him. Jesus uses a similar expression with the woman with the hemorrhage when she's healed, the woman with the issue of blood. Faith has saved you. He says the same for the leper, the one leper who returns to give thanks. He says to that guy, your faith has saved you. Their faith in Jesus had saved them from their desperate state, providing physical healing, yes, but I think something better as well. Because relationship with Jesus provide healing to their souls. He was seeing with spiritual eyes. It was even more important here than the fact that they were given physical sight. Philip Ryken mentions how Helen Keller was once asked, isn't it terrible to be blind? She responded by saying, better to be blind and see with your heart than to have two good eyes and see nothing. These blind beggars saw more than the crowd did. They had already been graced by the Lord. It was their faith in Jesus as the Son of David which led them to receive salvation in Him. And this text reminds us yet again that Jesus here, the Son of David, is not merely a descendant of David, but is David's Lord. He does what is distinctive of divinity. He is God, the Son of God. Jesus touches them, bids them see, tells them go. Their response is to see, glorify God, and go. And their going is seen in their following Jesus. I love this too. Like, oh wow, I've got eyes. Okay, I'm going to go see the Grand Canyon, and I'm going to go check out, you know, the seven wonders of the ancient world. You know, they're, they're going to follow Jesus. They've been given eyes. And it's almost as if they can't take their eyes off of Him. They don't go to Jesus trying to get something so they can go on with their life doing their own thing. They're, they go to Jesus to receive from Jesus that they might serve and follow Jesus. And there they are, removed from the side of the road, to now following Jesus, we're told, in the way. That description sounds a whole lot like discipleship. Those who are following Jesus in the way. Upon the road. This beggar is transformed. We see Jesus at work. We see the Lord at work. We see this beggar's transformation. This blind beggar follows. While just not too long ago, that rich young ruler goes away sad. Gratitude is the greatest motivator. Out of thankfulness and love for Jesus, Bartimaeus can't leave Jesus' side. Having received such a precious gift as an act of sheer mercy and grace, he can't think of a better activity than to follow Jesus along the way. And I'll tell you, this is a really great indicator. We're not saved by works. We're saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. But those who are saved demonstrate that salvation in works which God prepared beforehand that we would walk in them. Those who have been transformed by Jesus have their goals and priorities transformed. They're forever changed. The love of Christ compels us. And what blessed news that we as a bunch of blind beggars are welcome to come and follow Jesus on the way. He's making the blind to see. He's beckoning for them to come and follow Him. And this miracle has an effect on the surrounding crowd. We're told that when this man sees, the crowd gives praise to God. In a sense, the crowd is given further insight, granted further eyes to see what's going on as well. But Jesus has done for blind eyes. 
Here's the good news. He can do for blind souls. Well, with the cross looming on the horizon and the suffering that Jesus is going to find there, we still continue to see the power of Jesus at work. His presence meant salvation for many. The kingdom of God was among them, and while the total effects of this kingdom have a not yet element, in another sense it was already there among them. The kingdom could not be constrained, and little glimpses could not be held back. Here's the great news. There's coming a day when every blind eye will see the glorious splendor of Jesus. A day when all the saints will gather around God's throne with heartfelt praise, glorifying the Lord forever. And that truly is something that every blind beggar longs to see. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank You for Your marvelous Word. For a way that it transforms us and changes us. Thank You for glorious pictures and insights into who Jesus is and His marvelous work done on our behalf. Thank You for Your compassion and mercy and love, which, Father, caused You to send Your own Son for us. We know You love the world because You gave Your only begotten Son. And You did this for a bunch of blind beggars, rebels, men and women dead in their sins. Thank You for Your marvelous grace and mercy extended. And I pray even as there's further contemplation on this text that there'll be people in here that perhaps at this moment are lost that would cry out to You, Jesus, Son of David, mercy me. Have mercy on me. We're all in need of Your mercy and grace, Father. Thank You for the forgiveness that is extended in and through Your Son, Jesus. We pray this in His name. Amen.